0: Welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapiro and with me as always...
1: Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Ave Satanus, praise be to Lucifer.
0: (laughs) This is the 49th episode of this comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at SeaPort. The best online and shelf source for comic books news, reviews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, watch
1: their movies. For example, Greg Carpenter has a book coming out called The British Invasion. Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and the Invention of the Modern Comic Book Writer. There's interviews with Karen Berger. It's coming out this month from CreateSpace, Amazon, and Kindle. Looks like an interesting read.
0: Oh yeah, that's definitely on my to-read list. And as long as we're mentioning stuff, there's a secret Patreon.
1: That's right, support smart criticism in comics.
0: So, shall we go on straight to the news, Sean? Let's. I don't know... There's something that made you go ablaze, as it were.
1: Yeah, yeah, there is. Although, I don't know if we can call it news, because that would imply that it is in fact new, but let's get into it. Mark Russell recently announced on Twitter that the second miniseries of Prez would in fact not be coming to press. DC has cancelled it. Now, I don't think that it's news to anyone that DC is unworthy of trust, as I have said so often, but it's nice that they keep proving it. And let's be clear here about something. I think, Tom, you and I, like, we both made our feelings about Prez perfectly clear. Yeah, we
0: reviewed the first six issues when they were first collected,
1: and we did not like them at all. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that neither of us are especially sad to see it go. I'm not sad for myself, I'm sad for the
0: people who paid for these six issues expecting the next six, because they were promised first a 12-issue mini, and then just a pair of two six-issue series, and now they're not going to get it, so the people who paid for these series just paid money for half a story.
1: And that is what burns my biscuit, so to speak. We've had DC fans defending this decision by saying, you know, the book didn't sell, and in today's market, when a book doesn't sell, it gets cancelled. You know this, we know this. Absolutely true. Here's the problem, though. With press specifically, and I think with most of the books that came out under the DCU banner... No, no, DCU! You? Who? Me? Yes. Never mind. Who's on first? Dan DiDio, at the time that DCU was being marketed to readers said in no uncertain terms that these books were meant to run for a year as a way to draw lapsed or hesitant readers in. And I quote, this is Dan DeDio. If you're trying to build a fan base, a new audience, you've got to nurture it. You've got to take your time. You've got to take your losses. Sooner or later, it's going to take hold and hopefully be a leader in the business. Right now, our goal is to try and feed out as much product that's as different as possible to try and attract the widest audience possible. The issue here, Tom, is not that DiDio broke some kind of vague promise or that, you know, editor-in-chief can't be trusted, surprise, surprise. The issue here is that DC was offering people a guarantee that these books would run for 12 issues. They tried to pull this nonsense with Tom King, too. And for all that Omega Men ultimately got its reprieve, I don't think there's any question that that interference affected the way the story was told. Because when we were reviewing Omega Man we noticed that at a certain point, it starts going like it's in fast forward.
0: Well, we disagreed on that. But if Omega Man were cancelled halfway through, this would have been a massive blow. Because as it is now, the Omega Man collection, you know, I make a prophecy, and I guarantee that prophecy, is going to be an evergreen. It's going to be one of those... I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, one of those Watchmen killing jokes, Sandman, All-Star Superman... You can always put this collection on the shelf and you can always sell it.
1: I would not be surprised if that were the case. But the problem is that Prez, for example, is not of that quality. And that's fine.
0: Yeah, but uh, the the few people who did buy into it seems to enjoy it. You know, we didn't like it.
1: More to the point, the question is how many of those people bought into those books because of the promise that they would at least get their two arcs, they would at least get their year-long story? right? This was part of a marketing strategy. It wasn't something that Didio just threw out there as a sort of, well, maybe it'll last, maybe it won't, whatever. He was very specific about it precisely because of the uncertainty that came out of the New 52, right? There was a period when you didn't know what book was getting canceled, what was coming back, what was getting shifted. And so DCU purported to have some kind of stability. Now, DC's decision to cancel Prez is a problem not so much because, you know, we're being robbed of a fantastic story or whatever, but because they made a commitment to the people who did buy DCU. So to renege on that commitment now, because they're going with Rebirth now, right? And that's a different direction, is if you're being charitable, it's in bad taste. If you're not being charitable, as I am inclined not to be, you know, it raises the question of why should you believe anything that DC says in terms and of its This
0: happens just as DC is launching its Young Animal line, which is like the DCU, a new direction, a young approach. You know, trust us, we're doing something special, which is all fine and good. But now that I think about Prez, I'm like, should I buy the first issues of the Young Animal launches? Some of them look really good, knowing that maybe they'll just, you know, the rug will be pulled beneath my legs. Maybe I'll just pay
1: them for four or five issues and then they'll be like, sorry, not enough money there. Now we're doing old animal. No, I see see what you're saying. I think the only real difference is, like, again, they tried to pull this with Tom King, but Tom King's profile, even at the time, was high enough that they were pressured into giving, you know, to giving way, so to speak. Gerard Way, I think, is the same way. It's hard for me to see him as being the sort of person who would be okay with being interfered with on that level, right? Mark Russell, sadly, is not that influential within Circles. So to the best of my knowledge, the only other thing he's doing for DC right now is Flintstones. So clearly they don't care, right?
0: <laughs> Flintstones is a very odd book. It's a strange, strange Title. i haven't
1: read it and again like this isn't a knock on russell it's just to say that he clearly doesn't have the pull that king or i expect way would have right so dc clearly doesn't feel any kind of way about pulling the plug on his work promise or no promise
0: now we've seen books being canceled halfway midway even start way through a run before this is something that we've talked about with
1: Image books a lot over the last two years. But the difference, I think, is that Image doesn't market their books as guarantees, right?
0: The big difference is for me, and that's, you know, that's my personal thing, is that with Image, I know this is a self-created book. This is self-owned. And in case of losses, I know that the actual creator is losing money and, you know, might go hungry or something. So I'm a bit more charitable towards them. But when, you know, when DC Comics, the subsidiary of Warner Brothers is saying, well, we're not mm-hmm. making enough money, I'm like, you can eat that. You can eat that yeah. six-issue loss and publish the book and you'll be okay. I absolutely and, and, agree. And even with Image, we've said it before about some creators that when it happens again and again and again, we're like, why should we? Um, The guy beyond Pisces and Red Queens, um, uh, what's his name? Curtis Sweeb. Yeah, Curtis Sweeby. He had it going on with like three books, one at a time, where... One of them was forever delayed, one of them got canceled, one of them was in troubles. And at this point, when he's launching a new book, I'm like, finish one of your old books before you're launching something new, because at this point, you know, why should I trust that this new book, your new project is ever going to end?
1: Exactly. It's an issue of trust. And really, first of all, I completely agree with you that the the financials here are different. Right, DC, at the time of us recording this podcast, holds, I think, 40% of the market share.
0: Rebirth was their huge success. They finally beat Marvel in market share.
1: For one month. Let's
0: see what yeah, happens yeah. in
1: the future. But you're absolutely right here. It would have been nothing for them to just you know, pop these six issues out and call it a day and at least be able to say that they gave a damn enough about the people who invested in DCU in the first place. Let them have their thing and walk away. That would have been perfectly
0: Even, fine. you know, truncated into, I don't know, a four-issue. Tell Ben Caldwell, you know, draw a bit tighter. Sure. I don't know. What are we going to get? Well, not us. The people who read press are going to get something called a 12-page election special, which I'm not even sure where it's going to be published because it's 12 pages. It's going to be like a backup on something? I don't probably, know.
1: Probably. Probably. Or released uh, digitally. I...
0: Which, again, we, we come back to uh, OMAC number eight. Again, from DC, which Jack Kirby was announced, I think, three, two thirds of the way through drawing that issue. By the way, this is your last issue. And so the last page, the very last page, is suddenly satellite falls, everybody dies.
1: I mean, it really does show at the end of the day that DC have absolutely no idea how to engender any kind of loyalty with their readers. The fact that they have loyal readers in itself. Just like I find that mind-boggling. I know it's the whole zombie fanboy mentality, whatever, but like, this is a company that is actively telling you one thing and then if it's inconvenient to them, they'll just do something else, whether you like it or not. I don't understand what kind of mindset allows you to see the way that they behave with all of these properties and then say, well, maybe Rebirth will be better. Why would it be better? It's the same people. It's the same decision makers. I keep saying this because it's true. As long as people like DiDio and Lee and Bob Harris are running the show, this is a mentality that they work with, right? That they rely on. That you can be promised something explicitly. Like in no uncertain terms be told that this book is going to run for X amount of issues. And if it doesn't, oh well. Yeah, why should I trust you now? Why should you pick up any DC book? Any of them? Of course, I mean, there are going to be certain creative forces. Yeah, you know, All-Star Batman is going to finish because it's... That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like there are certain creative forces that are at DC right now that even an idiot like Dan DeDio would think twice about crossing. This is why I say like I'm cautiously optimistic about Young Animal. Gerard Way, I think, is one of them. Tom King is absolutely one of them after they signed him for an exclusive. And I think also Scott Snyder is not someone that they would want to alienate. But what does that tell you? That tells you that any other book written by any other writer with any other creative team, will it be there in six months or not? Probably not. You know, what's the point in getting interested in Hope Larson's Batgirl? For what? They can say whatever they want to about how long it's going to last. Six months down the line. If it doesn't sell, goodbye, we'll do something else.
0: No, the problem isn't that they cancel a book because they're perfectly allowed to. The problem is give the creators some time. Let them finish, especially if you made a promise to your audience
1: to let them finish. Do not make guarantees and then feel that you are not bound by them. If they hadn't guaranteed the other six issues of press, I don't think either of us would be sitting here talking about it, right? It would just be another unfortunate cancellation. But the fact that not just that they made that commitment, but that that commitment was calculated as part of a marketing strategy to make DCU appealing. Because the whole point of making that commitment in the first place was to say, okay, if you are the kind of reader who has stopped reading DC because all of these changes and creative redirections and all of this here is something that will be stable for a year come and see what it is
0: and you know what i'm thinking about i'm thinking about all the comic book shops that stocked on press volume one and now they can't sell it because what they're going to tell the readers here's this first half of a story that's never going to end that's never
1: going to end right yeah and again this does happen with image very frequently. And we comment on that all the time. Yeah. But the difference is image never presents itself as saying, you know, we have the money and we have the means or whatever. And sure, com- they don't break commitments is the thing. They've never said this book will run for 50 issues. And then after 10 issues, there's like, ah, eh, never mind. Because you you have gotten people to buy these books. You owe them.
0: Uh, speaking of image books and ending not too early... Yeah. Actually, The Other Way Around, Invincible by uh, Kirkman and Ryan Otley right now is the artist. Yeah. uh, is going to end with issue 144. I'm
1: just imagining Otley sitting somewhere being like,
0: Dobby is free. Almost 10 years now, I think he's been drawing Invincible. Say what you will about the quality of the book and I dropped off right before issue 100, which is still a lot of issues of Invincible I've read.
1: You made it 95 issues further than me.
0: The commitment that Kirkman had to, you know, this thing he created and that Otley had is quite astounding in this day and age of 30 issues is a long runner as a superhero story. And the absolute commitment to the idea of this is how I want to tell a superhero story is impressive. And while it's not as being as successful uh, critically or financially as The Walking Dead, and really nothing is, the fact that he actually managed to keep this thing floating... And I think a nearly monthly basis, there were been a couple of delays and they took a break once or twice, but, you know, 144 issues over 10 years.
1: It's great. Am I wrong in assuming that this is the only Kirkman property that was never made, uh, like, licensed for television? There was talk about a movie like in
0: 2008 or something, but Mm -hmm. obviously nothing came of it. Right. Because The Walking Dead's on
1: TV, Outcast is on TV. Mm, Yeah.
0: Can you do Invincible on a TV budget you can do it on a movie budget, on a TV budget. A, a friend of mine who is a big Invincible fan, Ori Elon, actually said that there was an Invincible movie. It was called Man of Steel. And he oh. said he, he liked Man of Steel because he can't stand Superman. And for him, this was the Invincible movie. You know, wanton destruction and, and gory violence and all of that. Oh,
1: dear. Which is, yeah. Was there a Martha there, too?
0: No, that's uh, Batman v. Superman.
1: Yeah, like especially for Image, a book that reaches 144 that isn't like Spawn or Savage Dragon or something like that.
0: I think it actually passed Savage Dragon because Savage Dragon is in delays all the
1: time. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure Savage Dragon at least made it to 200. Oh, right. We almost reviewed that. And then you said like, no, 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 thank you. It is still impressive, especially considering that it's been a single creator all this time.
0: Yeah, a single writer. And he talks about how he wanted originally for Invincible to become like this image Marvel DC thing. He wanted to pass it along to other creators. But then he said, well, no, because I'm writing a story that actually progresses and changes. And, you know, Mark started as a teenager, the hero of Invincible started as a teenager, and now he's a grown man with a wife and daughter. And I think, I think, don't quote me on it, that Earth was destroyed at one point and and he and his wife like became stranded outside of earth and joined this alien empire or something he was really committed to changing the status quo and not doing this always the world outside your window thing
1: which i think is excellent i mean Mm -hmm. i I do wish kirkman were a better writer so that i would have found it interesting enough to stick around I,
0: i don't think it's a terrible book i think it's you know it's good At a certain point, the shock value of it, and it it was trying to shock you every, you know, every year there was this big bloody battle that would kill somebody or somebody would get raped or whatever. I mean,
1: you realize that you're describing The Walking Dead, right? You're describing exactly The Walking Dead, like a book that persists in status quo until every now and then it has this huge shocking moment. And then the, the plot just keeps looping around.
0: It works for him. I
1: know? guess, I guess. And you know, he's ending it on his own terms, so good for him. Yeah, respect. TV news. TV news. So, Grant Morrison has locked two separate TV deals with Sci Fi, or Sifi, if you are so inclined. Swi Fi? Ay, ay, ay. Uh, <laughs> the first deal is to adapt his miniseries Happy, which I think you liked substantially more than I did. Uh,
0: well, I was okay with it. It was a four issue project with uh, Derek Robertson, mm-hmm. which was about a hitman trying to kill like a Santa wannabe while he hallucinates that there's this tiny, cute little flying donkey thing talking to him all the time. It was almost like seeing Grant Morrison Doing a Mark Miller doing a Grant Morrison. Jesus.
1: That's elaborate.
0: I can see how you can make this, you can take this premise into, and make it into a show. Doing the hitman with a heart thing, only literalizing the heart as this cute fuzzy thing.
1: Sure. Uh, the other deal is to adapt Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And here I'm a little concerned. To the best of my knowledge, and admittedly, like I'm not entirely clear on what Morrison's been doing over the last couple of years, has he ever actually adapted other people's work?
0: To TV?
1: No. Uh... Adaptations?
0: <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, obviously he works on other people's properties all the time. He works sure. on Batman, he works on Superman. No, no,
1: no. But I mean the direct adaptation of existing material. Not well, a when, when they're saying
0: Greg Morrison adopts, we don't know what it means. What is he just going to be the writer on one of them? Is he going to be director or producer? What's his level of involvement? Well,
1: no. My understanding... Adapting,
0: adapting is such a broad term.
1: Well, no, but hang on. He has said specifically that he'll be co-writing and executive producing both projects.
0: Yeah, co-writing, which is another one of those um, Alex Cross books, which James Patterson co-writes with other people, and by co-writes, are meaning allows to his name to be used on the cover.
1: Unfortunately, the other co-writer is Brian Taylor, who is perhaps best known for the second Ghost Rider film with Nicolas no, no, Cage. no, no, no. no. Best oh. known
0: for Crank 1 and Crank 2 a.k.a. the best action films of the 21st century.
1: I'll let you have that if you want. That's fine. I'm not I gonna, want it.
0: I will not fight you for that. I, but I'm still waiting for Crank 3D. <laughs>
1: well, you know, what's-his-face is probably free. What, what's his name? Jason Statham. Statham? Yeah, he's probably whatever. Actually,
0: but. he's perfect. Yeah, The Neveldine guy, uh, Neveldine and Taylor, because it was two creators originally. They'd be perfect for Happy if you want to do it as it's not For Happy, yes.
1: For Brave New World? <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That that's I a find a bit choice. odd. Yeah, it's like Morrison is, is co-writing and executive producing both of them with Brian Taylor. So that means Brian Taylor and Morrison are doing Brave New World. I have some concerns.
0: I don't think I've ever actually read the book. I've read, like, excerpts from it, but I've never actually sat down and read the whole thing. I
1: mean, I've read it. I wouldn't say that, like, it's a monumental epic that should never be touched or whatever. I'm just wondering, like, Morrison specifically, I don't get it, you know? Like, you're adapting Aldous Huxley's Brave New World to television with the guy who made Crank. These things, like, Happy would be something else. Like, these are two completely different genres. I just don't understand why Morrison, who, as far as I can recall, has never been about directly using adaptive material. He tends to do his own thing.
0: Well, that's assuming we'll even see these things, because Morrison projects on TV have always been promised but never happened. Remember that Sinataro thing that has been in talks forever? First, it was a movie... Then it was a miniseries for TV, then it was a comic book, and now it's apparently a TV show again, and we've seen nothing of it. Literally nothing. All we've seen is this one overused image of an astronaut walking on a dark road.
1: Yes, but these were projects that originated in TV, right?
0: No, what I'm saying is Morrison never managed to actually make the jump from comics to TV or movies.
1: Has he ever had the opportunity with other works?
0: He was always talking about one it's going to be this it's going to be that. He was in Hollywood for quite a long while but nothing came of it.
1: Nothing came of it regarding Sinatoro specifically or nothing came of it regarding other movies. Any, anything We Free was meant to be a movie for like forever?
0: Nothing. Oh, ah, okay. Do you remember that? Uh, yes, there I was do. talk there was a talk around uh, I want to say something called War Cop. Again, nothing came of it. Uh-huh. It's almost like he's he's the opposite Mark Miller, right? He's a great writer who can never make his work adapt. And Miller is a very shallow writer who, well, because he's a shallow writer, because he writes this one big premise, easily digestible, you can give it to Hollywood and they'll be all over it.
1: You know Morrison would be so infuriated by that comparison. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm saying it's too good for Hollywood, so I don't know why you should um, be angry about it. Because Mark Miller succeeds I, I'm, where I'm he su- fails. He, could, he would be angry because I guess he wants Hollywood money. Everybody does. but
1: Sure. Well, listen, I guess we'll keep our eyes on it. I don't have any particular expectations here. I mean, Happy, even by the standards of later era Morrison, is not exactly the work that everyone's praising as his best. And Brave New World... I mean... If this were a case of someone who was known to be the type of person who puts, like, inventive spins on adaptations, that would be something else. I have no idea what Morrison would do with Breaking the World, and I kind of don't want to see. Sticking with TV news, DC's in trouble again, Tom. DC's in trouble? Oh, yes. Activate the DC signal, I guess. Ben Queen, who is the showrunner, or I should say former showrunner, for the upcoming series Powerless, which I know almost nothing about uh Has left the show due to, and I quote, creative differences, which is probably code for damn it, Dan, would you get out of my director's seat?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, seeing as I know nothing about this, sh- I thought, pa- wasn't Powerless a Marvel property? It Marvel was, had a comic book series called Powerless, I remember a a many mini- years se- ago.
1: Well, no, it was a miniseries by, uh, I think it was Mark Chernis about basically sort of like an Elseworlds thing where the heroes don't actually have any powers and they're just going about their everyday lives. Um, From what I understood, but this is supposed to be something else altogether. The premise as I remember it, because again, this has not been talked about at all lately, is that it's supposed to be a single-camera workplace comedy that's set in the universe of DC. So you have, like, for example, the main character is this insurance adjuster who specializes in covering people for like acts of superhero crime fighting. Sort of like Damage control. I was gonna say that. Sort of like damage control, but not exactly. Like they don't directly deal with the Fallout, just like what's life like in the DCU. Which I guess changes significantly depending on whether or not this is the CW's DCU or the Snyderverse DCU. (laughs) Because the insurance premiums after Man of Steel Wow. Um,
0: a tough look at the Snyderverse DCU. Just everybody's dead. The show opens and everybody's dead. And just slow, slow move of the camera over a bunch of corpses.
1: I'd like to uh, pay out the insurance on my house. What happened to your house? Uh, it was reduced to a smoldering crater by Superman. Speaking Sir. of the
0: murderverse, you have seen Suicide
1: Squad, haven't you?
0: <laughs> I Since have. Since the last episode. I have, and I You liked
1: it even more than me. I am forced to concur with your analysis that it is a dumpster fire of infernal proportions. Me saying that is the extent to which I am willing to give Suicide Squad any more of my time. This is the first movie, I think, in years that I wanted to leave in the middle. Because I just had no idea what was going on. They keep playing songs for these characters and then stopping after 30 seconds and playing a different song. If you ever wanted to see like a cinematic manifestation of ADHD, there it is. David Ayer needed to get his Ritalin.
0: Yeah, and we've said, by the way, last episode that we'll talk about box office when they came out. And yes. now we have two weeks box office on Suicide so well, Squad. And it's not, it's just like Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. It's not bad. It's not like a huge crash. Money's lost. They've made their budget back, but it's not yeah. as big as they've wanted it to be.
1: Well, the larger issue there is that we already know from past experience that the Man of Steel scenario of making your budget back is considered, by the WB at least, to be a failure, right? Batman v. Superman you was... You make to make the big, the big B billion. But here's the interesting question. We know that Batman v. Superman came about largely because Man of Steel was considered a failure, right? So... What changes do you think will be made now that Suicide Squad is classified under the same sort of made its money back, but the WB is not happy with where it is?
0: So far, everything that they do in the movieverse seems to be course-correcting. Like, Man of Steel didn't succeed, so we'll course-correct, we'll add Batman. Batman always makes us all the money in the world. And then Batman v Superman made a lot of money, didn't get the proper reviews, so let's course-correct will be more fun, will be more like Guardians of the Galaxy. And now this doesn't work, so... And they can't course-correct now, because the other movies are in production. Justice yeah. League is in production, it's Wonder too Woman late. is deep in production. The thing is, it's not too late, because as we've seen, and as has been talked about, Suicide Squad has been post-edited to death. The original version that David Ayer produced was basically hacked away by the guy who did the trailer for the movie.
1: And just as an aside, Jared Leto is apparently in some kind of, like, fugue state because he's been going on social media talking about, oh, this wasn't the movie I was promised, uh it's not the role that I thought it would be, I feel like I've been tricked. It's like, eh, well, cry me a river, you were, like, the worst Joker ever, so... I don't really, I mean, I I realize that when I say these things, it sounds like the sort of lack of critical thinking that a fanboy would say, right? Like everything is the worst thing ever. But no, I mean, when you have Mark Hamill, Jack Nicholson, Cesar Romero, Keith Ledger, and then you have Jared Leto, and you just compare these performances, he was pretty bad.
0: Everything about that movie was pretty bad. I can't really blame him. I I can't really blame him because, like I said, I don't know if it was a good movie beneath all this crap because it was the worst
1: editing job in the 21st century. Oh, my God. Why was Cara Delvin doing that? Like Her whole time when she's casting this evil magic spell as the Enchantress, she keeps shimmying her shoulders around like she's doing the hustle. And I found that terribly distracting. I'm like, what are you doing? Is that the Macarena? What are you doing?
0: I have no idea. What is happening in this film? I have no
1: idea. And Amanda Waller... Listen, listen, listen. You know I love The Wall. Yes. You do not cast Viola Davis as Amanda freaking Waller and then make her out to be stupid, which is exactly what happened in this movie. When you look at what she actually accomplishes... and Nothing, uh, nothing. Not only nothing, but like... She is so dumb in this movie. She makes dumb rookie mistakes, and that is not Amanda Waller. Somebody made the point that if the intent of the movie
0: was to showcase why Black Ops government squads are a bad idea, it's a, it's doing a <laughs> No, it's doing a great work. And if it's meant as a commentary, if it was meant as a commentary, it's a pretty good commentary. The problem is since the intent to do it, you know, as the start of a franchise and They hoped obviously that it's gonna have Suicide Squad 2 and 3. So we know that's not the idea. Oh and also Batman is the worst person ever apparently in this universe. I'm gonna spoil a bit Suicide Squad because two weeks ago. Go ahead. Now I've I haven't seen Batman V Superman all the way to the end because I'm not a you know, I don't hate myself. So the thing everybody talking about of him murdering people, maybe. In this movie, in Suicide Squad, he A allows a young girl to stand in front of him. With her father threatening to shoot her. B... Well, that's when not exactly
1: what happened.
0: This is what happens. And B, when this whole thing is over, Amanda Waller comes to him, to Bruce Wayne, and says, Well, I will give you some files about super people that you can recruit. And in response, you will protect me from all the political afterthought of this whole huge mess that I've created, which includes her shooting four innocent people in the head. For no reason. Well, for reason for her, but Batman is basically saying, "Yes, sure, I'll protect a known murderer."
1: If we sit here and nitpick the movie, it'll take us two yeah, hours. Because, yeah. like Captain Boomerang, who, by <laughs> the way, does nothing in this movie, right, is introduced being taken down by the Flash. The premise of this movie is that Midway City is on fire for an entire day. Where is the Flash?
0: Is it a day? Is it two weeks? Is it a
1: month? Is no, it no, 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 no. Hours? No, I because I, I distinctly know. no, I distinctly remember like Amanda Waller says specifically, it's been you know Midway City has been having these problems for a whole day. Like so, having established that superheroes are already active, see, this is the thing that drives me insane. The premise of the film would make perfect sense if Batman v Superman hadn't actually happened, because you have Superman, you don't have anybody else, right? Then it makes sense to be like, okay, we can't find any other superheroes, but we have a bunch of supervillains. Let's turn them into the Suicide Squad. Fine. But here it's like, no, the beginnings of the Justice League are apparently running around, but... They will allow
0: the whole point of the Suicide Squad comic was that they were the Black Ops Squad. They were supposed to be sure going on these undercover missions here. They're in broad daylight in the major city. And so well it no makes no sense.
1: Broad daylight would be implying that any of these scenes actually took place. Well, in, it's in the, the D C
0: it's the DC Universe version of Broad Daylight. Oh. <laughs> I think I think I have this backstory where In the DC Universe, a giant meteor hit
1: the Earth and there's all this ash around. It's really simple, sunlight doesn't exist, which would explain so much. I'm going to blow your mind right now. It's really simple. All the DCU movies take place in a universe where Final Night happened and Hal Jordan wasn't around. You remember Final Night?
0: I unfortunately do. There you go. Okay, makes sense. Uh, Speaking of DC movies, something a bit less grim, you were very excited about this one. I was, wasn't I? Uh, Take it away.
1: So, in news that floored me, it really did floor me. Adam West, Burt Ward, and Julie Newmar are returning for an animated Batman movie called Return of the Caped Crusader based on the 1966 show, meaning Biff Pow Bam. There's a death trap in the trailer that's a giant microwave TV dinner Tom. A yes, giant there is. dinner. Wow. Wow. Because, okay, bringing these actors back for animated films is brilliant because obviously, you know, they've aged. Not a knock on them, but, you know, 1966, 2016, some time has passed. Have you seen Adam West recently? No, I have not. When he talks, he's Batman. Like, there's no, no time has passed in that department. Now, the last animated Batman film, you may recall, was The Killing Joke. Yep. Which was very much not Biff Pow Bam. And I mean, before that was Bad Blood, and before that was Son of Batman, etc., etc., etc. So this really does feel like a breath of fresh air. Because I know that they're not bringing these actors back and doing this film so that at the end, Superman can show up and, like, rape Julie Newmar. I don't think so. (sighs) Wow, Sean. I mean, come on, right? Like, that's...
0: Okay, my thing about this is I never grew up with the Batman 66 show. I grew up a bit, obviously, with the cultural blowback of, well, we need to prove that Batman is not, you know, for kids. Batman is mature and dark. And therefore, I also, in the last, I'd say, 10 years or so, seen the reappreciation of the show as a comedy gem, as something that is culturally important to the notion of Batman. But... I am a bit weary of nostalgia properties and this seems to be just straight up, hey, you remember this thing you liked? Here's more of it.
1: Superficially, I would agree with that. I would say that it's always a good idea to be wary of nostalgia traps. The difference here, though, is that... And again, like this isn't coming out of the ether because DC was running that Batman 66 comic too, right?
0: Yeah, which was actually very good.
1: It was. And I think that that might be part of the like the surge of reappreciation for the show is just to say you know just for like for one property for 90 minutes to sit down and watch a batman who does not look like he's constipated all the time like just wants to have a sense of some corner of this freaking universe that does not require you to take Prozac in order to participate, right? And really, like, whatever else you can say about the 66 show, God knows it was corny, it was cheesy, it was otherwise food product-y, it was really, you know, the the most scenery-chewing everywhere, right? You could see teeth marks on every piece of the set. But at the same time, after this Miller blowback, right? After the Dark Knight 3 is getting published and Dark Knight 4 is on the way and Batman hasn't smiled since 1983, it does feel like if we're having this one anomalous, this one film where you can just sit back and be like, this is so dumb, but at least there's a color here that's not gray or blue, right? I feel like that in itself is valuable, setting aside nostalgia, because I really don't think that people would tune into this out of a sense of nostalgia. Because you are not alone in being, you know, someone who did not grow up with the 66 show. I did, but only because where I was growing up, you had the reruns, right? Yep. Everything was being syndicated. But, you know, that was the 1980s. It's 2016. I have no expectations from people who would be like, what the hell is this? Who's Adam West? I don't get it, right? But I do think that even those people who have gotten maybe a little tired of seeing Batman in this sort of monolithic Christian Bale Ben Affleck mold can enjoy a sort of alternative look I think it's great the fact that they went and got the original actors back is just a bonus you know like because they could have just recast it it would not have been a big deal
0: I've just finished uh, watching that TV show Stranger Things isn't it great and and here's the thing I really liked it but when it ended I was like this was just that it was just a nostalgia trip I didn't feel like you've done anything new and exciting you did it very well and Stranger Things is you know well cast well shot well directed well written well everything but
1: but it's a nostalgia trip no you're absolutely right why is that bad
0: and this culture of us and especially if we're in your comics subculture is so deep and wallowing in nostalgia and one of the reasons that I keep bringing up Tom Scioli's work, especially Transformers vs. G.A. Joe, is for me this is the proper way to do nostalgia because he was intentionally taking this thing and, well, no pun intended, transforming it.
1: No, saying, no, 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 saying, no hang on, hang this, on, Tom.
0: This is what it was and this is what it can be and no, should be.
1: I think you're mischaracterizing Scioli's work a little bit if you're arguing that his... Interpretation of Transformers versus G.I. Joe was in any way transformative. It's not like he was doing things with the Transformers or with G.I. Joe that were completely outside the bounds of the genre or the way that fans recognize them. Oh, Part you, of the appeal, you, haven't,
0: you haven't read the book all the way to the end. No, though.
1: I haven't, but like from the issues that I read, it's like saying Transformers more than meets the eye. That, for example, is a case of the concept really being stretched beyond the boundaries, right? But even there, and even with Gem, I do think that the innovation is fantastic, but to say that that's different from Stranger Things, because Stranger Things invokes nostalgia and doesn't subvert anything, it's like, yeah, it's it's still well-executed. Not not
0: subverting. I don't need it to be destroyed. I just need it to do something new. And in this case, yeah, I think Stranger Things for me is close to something like Gem or Archie, which is here's the thing you liked, only but done, done well. in a better standard. Exactly. Let's admit, a much better standard than it would have originally have been. Oh well, my God. Yes, something, something like uh, Transformers more than meets the eye or Transformers vs. G.I. Joe is, here's this thing you like, here's step two.
1: When you look at Stranger Things, and I, and I do want to just sort of like touch on that for a second, like Stranger Things is set in 1983, right? Yep. My theory for this, Nightmare on Elm Street, which also had a Nancy whose best friend was Kidnapped by a Monster, came out in 1984. So when I look at like the way that that show uses nostalgia, right, and recreates the period that it's set in, what I see is it's homage, and it's not the kind of cynical attempt to cash in on nostalgia, which I think is really where you and I agree that, you know, that tends to be crap, right? When you target nostalgia without understanding anything about why people liked the original property? That's the problem. Oh, I mean, okay, if we're looking for like perfect examples of proper use of nostalgia versus improper use, I guess that would be the gem comic versus a gem film, right? Oh. There you go. One of these was an attempt to cash in on a franchise by using a name and having absolutely no understanding of anything associated with the original property— the other was people who put their own spin on it, certainly. But you can't say that Kelly Thompson was being... Let's take Jem and the holograms and put them in space. It wasn't huh. that, right? Like well,
0: unfortunately, are... no. The movie would have been a lot better if it sure. had been in I space. Mean,
1: movies like that tend to fail in a very, very specific way. And we see this a lot with you know attempts to cynically cash in on nostalgia, which is that... If they had gone a little bit further with their innovation, they might as well have just called it something else. The point of using the name and not anything else associated with it just raises the question of, well, then why... Why use the name at all? And this is actually relevant to our trade review this episode. Oh, which, yeah, yeah. Which we'll get to eventually. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's something, no, but that's something that I do want to keep in mind, right? The idea of there are right ways to use nostalgia to evoke certain feelings in your readers without pushing too far. And then you can just enjoy it for what it is. And I do without, think without,
0: without becoming the dramatic version of Family Guys. Oh, here's this thing you know.
1: Exactly. Like Return of the Caped Crusader. Could be absolute garbage. I don't know. We haven't seen it yet. DC animated films tend to Uh, be more missed than hit. Yeah, but I will at least check it out because God knows I could use a glimpse of a different kind of Batman even if that's all it is, right? Even if the only thing this film has to offer is Robin strapped to a giant death trap that looks like a microwave TV dinner. I'm like, okay, I haven't seen that in 20 years. If I can get some laugh out of that, maybe that is all we well, need you, at this point. You've never
0: seen Batman the Brave and the Bold?
1: Uh, no, I actually missed that one. Oh,
0: I love that show. That one, I think, actually did what you're asking from the Cape
1: Crusader. Well, it was when, though? The Brave and the Bold was 2005, right? No, is it was 2007? It's Nine? been a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, so... There, it's been a while since we had a Batman animated show in general, ever since the CGI thing got oh, canceled. Oh, my God. After one season, the Batman, and I, and I seriously can't remember a time without a Batman animated TV show because they had Batman the Animated Series, and then The New Adventures of Batman, then The Batman, which wasn't as good, but was well, okay-ish. between the two
1: of them, you also had uh, Justice League Unlimited, where Batman yeah. was constantly featured, and
0: then Batman: The Brave and the Bold. And it's so strange to think that, like, for the last three years, we didn't have a solo Batman TV show.
1: Well, I think part of the- Gotham doesn't count. Oh, God. Oh, are you kidding me with Gotham? I haven't I oh. haven't watched it in forever. No, Do you it, know the level of bullshit that that I've, show... I
0: sometimes stop and read in, like, Comics Alliance about the latest oh, madness from, my from God. that show.
1: I just don't understand. Like, I've been tuning in sporadically out of a sense of just, like, me feeling like Dr. Kevorkian, right? Like, let me look at this corpse right now. Because, oh, my God, it is so bad. But that's a different story.
0: Uh, Speaking of TV shows and Marvel, finally.
1: And potentially horrible mistakes. Go ahead.
0: Uh, Runaways is going to come onto TV via Hulu, of all things. And yes, this is not news. Hulu
1: is still a thing that exists. (laughs) They recently stopped uh, their free streaming, so that's kind Mm. of unfortunate. The reason I say this did not fill me with as much hope as you would think, because I love the original runaways Oh yeah yeah it was the one Brian
0: of the- K Vaughn, Adrian What the the first series was 18 issues and then the second run was also like 12 16 issues
1: No no the second run ran for I think 25 issues No but
0: the the Brian K Vaughn thing I'm no I'm F- referring
1: to the Brian K Vaughn thing it ran for I think 20 or 24 issues
0: There's this good 40 issues of one of the best young yeah. superhero titles and it really times? and it
1: really was. It was, I think, a highlight at the time that it was coming out. I think. Uh, by the way,
0: we should explain the concept of Runaways. In runaways. Case some
1: of our listeners sure.
0: aren't familiar. Uh,
1: John. So the Runaways is the story of twelve criminals who formed a group that basically ruled Los Angeles and were serving these demonic deities called the Gibbering. The gibberim tell them that six of their number will be allowed to survive when the world is destroyed and create a new utopia. When one of these couples gets pregnant, all 12 of them decide to bring children into the world, raise a new generation as normal people, not as villains per se, and then give their seats in Each, paradise to these yeah, kids.
0: It, yeah, six children, six places.
1: Now, all of that is completely irrelevant because what ends up happening is that the kids discover that their parents are conducting some kind of ritual murder and quite literally run away. Yep. Uh the series was fantastically written by Brian K. Vaughan. It was one of his uh later works at Marvel, I think right before I he left. I think
0: it it's the one that put him on the map because yeah. he had, you know, he had some Spider-Man minis before it and they were good, but yeah. this was the one that made people stop and
1: pay attention, right? Absolutely. It was a fantastic series, really well integrated into the Marvel universe, full of twists and turns, fantastic characters. Uh, something of an anomaly at Marvel in that after Vaughn left and nobody
0: nobody managed to make this it this book
1: defeated every creative team that Marvel tried to put up against. Joss Whedon and Catherine Joss Imanen. Whedon couldn't do it Catherine Imanin couldn't do it. it it just did not work with anybody else and the Cast sort of scattered throughout the Marvel Universe afterwards. Yeah, for the Young Avengers.
0: Not Young Avengers, like the Young dot Avengers title. So. Sort of. Avengers Academy, Avengers Arena,
1: stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think Chase turned into Dark Hawk or something. I don't know. That, like, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you read to the end of the last Brian Vaughn issue, and that's good enough for me. Now, it's coming to Hulu, and I have concerns, Tom, because. Yes. The showrunner, is Josh Schwartz. Does that name mean anything to you? Uh, according to the report I'm reading, he did Gossip Girl, he which did, I have never watched. He did Gossip Girl. He was also the creator of the OC for Our Sins. So, Again, another thing <clears throat> that I have never
0: watched. I am not into these kinds
1: of shows. So you can understand my apprehension.
0: Well, no, because I've never watched them. So I don't know. Maybe they were great.
1: I'm trying to think of a parallel here. Picture Dawson's Creek with more sex and less talking.
0: Not appealing.
1: Not at all, no. So the idea that he's going to be running the Runaways is like, look, I don't even know. What does that mean? Are they going to age Molly up?
0: There's also someone called Stephanie Savage. What did she do? She
1: was a co-creator on Gossip Girl. Ah, okay. Which, again, like typical CW teen drama, and I'm saying teen in air quotes here, because none of those actors were under 30. People have been clamoring for Runaways and, to a lesser extent, Young Avengers a television series for ages, right? This oh, is not it, new. It
0: was, it was meant to be a movie in the early days of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like right after, I think, Thor or something. They were talking about casting and stuff like that, but. I'll be completely
1: honest with you. I'd rather not. Not with that showrunner, not with what he brings to the table. You know, this, I have no patience for seeing The Runaways turn into yet another teen drama because that's where the other writers failed. The other writers tried to turn it into, you know, love triangles and this and that, and, and that's just, that that was never the point of the book. And if you try to make it the point of the the story, then you know you're just—I don't know what that is—but it's not. It's not Runaways. So
0: I think Runaways was also the last time somebody managed to produce. Uh, gender and culturally diverse book without the internet shouting SJWs at them. Well, no.
1: Let's be completely fair and accurate here and say that Alan Heinberg's run on Young Avengers came after Runaways.
0: Oh, right, right. That was the time when you can actually introduce minority characters without, you know, the conservative half of the internet going up in flames. It,
1: It was right on that spot of people hadn't quite figured out how social media worked yet, so... It was entirely possible. Although, you know, not that that stops anybody today. Like, Kieran Gillen is not sitting somewhere being like, the conservative internet wants to get me, I better not throw this gay character into the book. Nobody really cares. Yeah, so those were books that were so atypical of Marvel, even at the time, and especially now. It was part of the, what's
0: what was it called? The tsunami Tsunami. line? Yeah, tsunami. Of which everything else failed, right? Miserably.
1: There was a Namor they tried to do something with Namor where they drew oh, right. him in Namor like... Oh, Namor
0: as a romance book. Yeah, it's like... Yeah.
1: A, it's like he, they, they put him twilight they, thing. They put him in like anime style, but they also gave him like... They shortened his shorts. You know how he used to run around with like the little green scale shorts like Robin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They made them shorter. And it was like, I don't think that that's... I don't think that works. And it didn't. Was, uh,
0: was Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane part of that line? I think it was. That was actually a very good comic, and I think the problem its problem was that it was well ahead of its time. Oh,
1: yes. Had that book come out today, it would have been received completely differently. Oh, yeah. But, you know, They they should
0: reprint that. I think it's out of print for forever. That was a good book.
1: And and I think it still holds up.
0: Well, I haven't read it since it came out, so I don't know, but I remember really liking it. We'll see. It's not on the CW, so maybe now that they're free of the restrictive format of working for the CW, maybe they, they can produce better work. Who knows? Is Hulu much better, though? I have no idea. Yeah, it's not... Like, again, I was surprised to hear that Hulu is still a thing that exists. <laughs> that That's the big news of this I, for me, I right? Hulu, it's
1: still a thing. You know, I feel like it would be so much better served if they just took it to Netflix, because the thing with Netflix is it's garnered a reputation of being very... Not monotonous in terms of its tone with Marvel properties, but you know, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, you're not exactly sitting there laughing well, your maybe, ass off. Maybe
0: it's because they're wanting it to be different. It could still Which, be, I don't know. Or uh, maybe Marvel just has a secret plan to take over all of TV because now it's Netflix, ABC, and Hulu. So it's like a tentacle, you know, be slowly. <laughs> Hail Hydra. away, taking over everything.
1: You realize you're describing the Hydra logo.
0: Well, there you go. Right? eventually there's going to be a Marvel TV show on the WB network and DC is going to be like looking oh at each other. What, how did that happen? How
1: did, who, who approved this?
0: Why, why are we producing <laughs> Squirrel Girl, the TV show? Oh, well, it's our most highly rated show for some Speaking reason.
1: of Squirrel Girl, by the way, there was, apropos of Stranger Things, right? There's this whole trend now of people want to see Barb from Stranger Things as Squirrel Girl.
0: Character was in like 30 minutes of screen. But now? wasn't she great? She was great, but I literally have no idea about the actress other than that. It's
1: better her than Anna Kendrick, is all I'll say.
0: Shall we go on to actual comics reviews? Let's. What have you got? Well, since we stalk DC all the time, let's keep on doing it. Oh, All-Star Batman Number 1, written by Scott Snyder, art by John Romita Jr. Yes. Okay. Oh, and uh, colors by uh, Denny Miki. Probably mentioned. It's also an artist showcase, by the way. John Romita Jr. will not do issue
1: two, I believe. No, and also the backup story has Declan Shelby. Oh,
0: yeah. yeah. So. so it looks great. It does. It's nothing it else. does
1: look it's... great. Both sides of it look great, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's be completely fair and say there isn't a single goddamn Batman here. There isn't so it's a single what? Goddamn Batman. So it's already a step up over the last all-star Batman. Yep, yep. They, they saved that brand. Say what you will. There's no Beefcake Alfred.
0: Uh anyway, <laughs> so we're doing uh, the plot is more high concept Scott Snydery. Yeah. Uh we have Batman apparently on the run from Gotham City accompanied by Two-Face while the whole country is trying to get him. Yeah. And we discover the how and why in a flashback for the story and I'm not sure it works for me. Me neither. Uh not not the actual story, which is All-Star Batman number 1 works for me for the same degree that every Batman story by Snyder since the Black Mirror thing worked for me, which is to say... Okay, I'm going to try to explain my problem with Scott Snyder. Absolutely. Reading Scott Snyder is like listening to death metal, which is to say it's so much. It's always, you know, bigger and more over the top and more and more and more, and he never, ever has any downtime. I remember finishing uh, reading uh, Year Zero and feeling... Wow, that was a work reading this book. Yeah. Whenever he tries to do like a small personal moment, and there are attempts in this book, it doesn't really work because it's always like over the top and more action and more explosion and bigger and bigger and bigger. You, you compare, again, Year Zero to something like Year One. You know, Year One is like a uh, slow and thoughtful jazz improvisation and Year Zero is like listening to Baroque opera at full volume.
1: To be fair, I don't know if that's so much a criticism of Snyder as it is... No, it's not
0: It's not a criticism, it's his style, and it's just... I get tired of it.
1: I don't think it's even his style, though. I think that tends to be just sort of, like, the style of the big two right now. Because think about it. Has there ever been a period of downtime between crossovers? You went from, like, original Sin to axis to... No, like, but in solo the whole titles. Concept?
0: But it's not the thing in solo titles. And really, when you say it like this, yes... It does feel like he's writing in constantly gotta to top myself crossover mode, yeah. only he's doing it in a solo
1: series. In a solo series that, if I understood the marketing correctly, is supposed to be out of continuity. Is it? I don't know, because like, why because, else would you uh, use All Star Batman? For
0: some, because for some reason we have here the new Robin the Duke
1: kid? Yeah, but Duke could have turned which, up in any which context. Which, the
0: book doesn't explain who he is, so I'm like, <laughs> because I, do, I don't read We Are Robin, so apparently there's this new Robin taken from that team book. So up until the backup trip by Declan Shelby, I was like, who
1: is this kid? Who's the one in the yellow armor? Yeah.
0: I, I, yeah, I assumed it was supposed to be some big shocking surprise that he was like this new side character that will be revealed in the continuation of the series, and then I reached the backup trip, oh, it's just a Robin. A Robin there's so many Robin
1: and there's really a whole nest of them. That's actually part of the problem that I had with this book too, because I don't know, maybe I'm just completely out of touch, but this really did feel like the sequel to something that Snyder had already written because he's talking about two face causing acid rain and everybody getting messed up. yeah, Yeah.
0: It's not, it's, can't be out of continuity. I don't know.
1: It, he he characterizes Two-Face as like this information broker who has dirt on literally every single person in which Gotham. Is the, yeah,
0: which is the kind of thing that can work in uh, early days type story, right? Because then you assume that he still has all these connections from the day that he worked. He was a he DA, was a right? a DA, yeah. But then why so would he, he have dirt
1: he, on normal people? Which,
0: no, no, no. I can, I can accept this as, a, as an idea, as a gimmick for a villain... What I can't accept is that if this does take place in the current DC universe, where it's been years since he was a normal man, how can he still has any secrets? Well, they're... you know the dirt the dirt has to change at a certain point, yeah. right? Well,
1: I mean, if you start looking for consistency in timelines with Batman, I mean, this is the same the same premise put forth that it's been, Batman has been active for five years and has had five Robins. So <laughs> it's a work study program. I, what he yeah? I... has? <laughs> it's an internship. <laughs> a year long internship, sure. And then they go from 13 to 18. I mean, if it uh, was a year-long internship, then basically all of Nightwing is like child molestation, and I don't think that's whoa, a good idea. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dick Grayson goes to live with Bruce Wayne because his parents are killed. That hasn't changed. But he would have to be a kid in order to be adopted. So, jump. A year later, he's replaced by Jason Todd. And then three years after that, so... Uh, he, okay. Eh, you know, it, it's getting a little, a little um, uncomfortable in the timeline area. But that's
0: not, I don't think that's as important to this. No, book. no. Which, I, I'm not saying, All-Star Batman is not a bad issue. It's, you know, number one, it's not a bad issue. You know, it's fun, it's flowing. Batman wields a chainsaw, which, to be fair, <laughs> Alfred shoots should him with a always, rocket. which... I'll... Batman should always wield a chainsaw, and you have like this sense of the B-level villains of the DC Universe trying to you know, take on someone who's way out of their league. Who is it? Firefly and... uh, Killer Moth. The Black
1: Spider, yeah. Yeah, sure, all of those. And then, of course, you have the waitress who pulls a gun on him. And it's just sort of like, I get where you're going with this. I don't know if there's...
0: I don't think the relations that he establishes between Batman and Two-Face is strong enough to serve as the center of the series. Because it's supposed to be
1: those two on the run. Yeah, well, it's also the idea that Two-Face, like, the whole reason that they're going on this road trip, right, and they're being chased by all these people, is because Two-Face has promised that whoever kills Batman and frees him will get, like, the sum fortune of the three richest gangsters in Gotham. But if Two-Face has been around long enough for people to know who he is, why on earth would you believe that promise? Because Two-Face's whole thing is the coin, right? You got a 50-50 chance of it. I don't, I, like, if it had been a different villain, and it, you know what it reminded, it actually reminded me of, you remember in uh, The Dark Knight Returns, there's that scene where the Joker's like, this guy's about to reveal Batman's identity.
0: No, 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 you're, you're talking about The Dark Knight, the movie, right, not the Dark, Dark Knight, Knight Returns.
1: The Dark Knight, so like, the Joker's like, um, I don't want him to reveal his identity, first person to kill him, or I blow up a hospital, right? Yeah, and then it everybody goes... was actually a
0: very good story in the Batman Kids book in the late 90s about... Uh, this rich guy whose son is killed by the Joker and is offering right. a huge amount of money for the whole city to kill the Joker. Batman has to defend the Joker. And that was a one-and-done issue and it worked really, really nice.
1: As a premise for a one-shot story and where the villain is the victim and not the instigator, it makes sense. Here, it's like, I don't understand why Two-Face of all people is playing the part of like the, the secret kingmaker to the extent that Alfred is willing to shoot him down with a rocket.
0: I can sort of get the idea of why they need to use Two-Face because they want a villain who has a personal connection with Batman outside of the villainy because Batman knew Harvey Dent or at least in the old continuity he did. They were friends, so it's not just uh if, if it was the Joker for example, a the Joker is overused and B it would just be Batman sit down, shut up, I want I just want to kill you but I can't. Catwoman and with mm, I I think this type of personal relation is very different. So there is a good reason to use Two-Face. I just don't think the story builds the connection well enough. Yeah. Uh, the art is lovely and just- It is. I'm amazed by John Romita constantly. I love his
1: design for Two-Face, by the way. Mm-hmm. Fantastic.
0: It is a bit of the John Romita face thing, which- everybody square. It's, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, which, you know what? It's not a problem. No. I just got used to it. And I really love all the small details, like in the diner scene where Batman is standing and we can see that he has a batarang, uh stashed on his back. Which is just, you know, a nice Die esque touch. And the action scenes are nice. The coloring really pulls it into a Greg poulou Batman type thing. Which is amazing. Which I never noticed how important was the coloring to this modern take on Batman. Because, oh,
1: it's it's pretty big. hmm um, The Declan
0: Shelby backup strip.
1: Yeah, something about a magic color wheel. I need you to explain this because I have no idea what that story was about.
0: It sounds like he's trying to do a Grant Morrison thing type of, uh, you know... Fantastic training.
1: Damien is
0: green. Jason
1: is bad. No, I get, it's one of those, uh-huh. I
0: get what you're trying to do, you just don't do it
1: well. Could you explain it to me then? Because I didn't get what he was trying to do at all. <laughs> uh,
0: well, the point is that Batman realizes <laughs> that, you know, different people respond to different methods of training and different methods of training develop the Robins in a different way, which is a nice idea for explaining why he has so many different Robins and how they all respond differently and are different people and not just, you know... Clones of one another.
1: Why did we need a story for that though? Why not? I don't know, it seems kind of weird. I mean, the emphasis seems to be shifting over to Duke, who's the new Robin, but it's like, I don't know. Well,
0: yeah, it's a backup strip about him. I don't know this kid. Apparently, the hope is that we learn to know him, but yeah, a bit of an introduction in the actual story, in the main story, is called for. I mean,
1: Snyder clearly does expect people to have been paying attention to what he's been doing all along because, like, there's a reference. Like, Duke talks about his parents for, I think, a page. Yeah. But it, it's sort of like a roundabout reference in that he never actually explains anything about it, so it's just sort of like uh okay. I guess we're just going with that now. i mean let's put I read, it this it's way. Not,
0: it's a fun book, it, but it's it's never fine. more than that, which I think I'm not coming back. is is a bit of a Scott Snydery thing on Batman for me, which I enjoy reading it, but i always end up tiring. Yeah, I'll
1: that. say like I'm not coming back for more only because I would need something different for Batman to get into it at this point. Because he really is turning into a meme. What Snyder's doing is a, as valid a direction as anything else, right? Yep,
0: yep, yep, but, definitely.
1: But it doesn't interest me specifically. Like, if you are a fan of Snyder's Batman, this is more of that. It's not like he's getting worse. He's, you know, he's maintaining his level. He's doing everything. Yeah,
0: despite, despite the name change, this is more of the same, yeah. really.
1: And, and they change,
0: artists change, but, you know, different dress. And that is Same fine Batman. on
1: its own merits. I just don't think that that offers anything in particular to people who are like, all-star Batman number one, maybe there's something I can get into. Not so much. Demonic? Demonic.
0: Demonic, written by uh, Christopher Sabella, art by Nick Walter, and colors by Dan Brown, apparently on a break from making... Uh, his million dollars
1: ba- <laughs> out of bad novels. And yet we still have demons, so clearly yeah. his published is felt.
0: Demons but no angels, published by Image Comics, and not to be confused with Demon Nick, the recent strip in the Judge Bread magazine. Oh, that's a thing? Yeah, it's ah. uh, by, uh, what's his name, the guy who does Jack Staff?
1: Oh, you stumped uh, me. I know who you're talking about. But I'm, yeah, I'm... yeah. Okay. The guy who does
0: Jacks. Anyway, right. demonic is very good. And what demonic, is it about? Not so much.
1: Tell us about demonic Tom.
0: Okay. Um, so, have you ever read or
1: seen Ghost Rider? Uh, on occasion, yes.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like that, only not as fun. Uh, Detective Scott Graves, of course, uh, will do anything to protect his family, even bargain away his soul. Now, the only thing to fear isn't New York worse criminals, but what's already raging inside of him. So he's a cop, and his daughter is very sick, and he basically sells his soul to a demon that was bound to him when he was a child in some strange cult, Mm -hmm. and now he has to kill criminals in order to... You know what? It's not even Ghost Rider. It's the book we reviewed last time. Yeah, it's Kill or Be Killed. It's it's the last... It's, you know, it's the last good version of
1: Kill or Be Killed. So I think that... As is often the case with Sabella, this book is perfectly average, right?
0: I, the only thing I've read by him was the... He did The Escape from New York... Uh,
1: yeah, and he, he did Heartthrobs.
0: I only read The Escape from New York thing from him, and like you said, yes, it was
1: it's workmanlike. the average, right? Yeah, it's it's workmanlike, right? And looking at this, and especially in comparing it to Killer or Be Killed, because, like, you could not... Something is going on at the image offices. They need to be more careful with, like accidentally forwarding writer premises to other writers and then just publishing all of them simultaneously because this book really does read like the exact same premise with one exception which is that I actually found Scott Graves to be slightly more compelling than Brubaker's protagonist whose name I've already forgotten if only because like he has some kind of clear motivation for making the deal well
0: because that character is not named Graves
1: well, that too. But also, you know, like that... Brubaker's protagonist is like a sad sack, right? He's like, oh, God, my life is so terrible. Let me kill myself. Oh, no, I didn't kill myself. Now I have a demon. Here, it's like, okay, so this cop makes a deal with some kind of... First of all, he clearly knows who this demon is, so there's some kind of backstory going on over there that isn't revealed. Second of all, we see the, uh you know, the motivation being to save his daughter. So at the very least, you can say that this is a more... Sympathetic to some extent, well, protagonist.
0: You say sympathetic, I say generic.
1: G- no, generic, absolutely. D- like, There's nothing special about this guy at all.
0: Okay, I- I'll say this. The first half of the issue, I kind of like. It's a very familiar, you know, mythical, supernatural thriller, but it is actually pretty well performed, and I really like the art. I like when, in page seven is it, when you have that woman uh burning herself and then you have a close up on her face on the side and then even smaller panel of a small fly that's that was a very Mignola ish, right? Yeah, it was Which is great, you know, if you want to copy someone in structure, you know, copy the master. But once we actually get the big, you know, demons show up and we have this guy dressing up to go kill criminals in New York, like someone from a cheap sci-fi TV show. This
1: was actually the thing that sort of tripped me up, though, was because, if I'm not mistaken, the demon never explicitly tells him to go kill bad people. She just says, go kill.
0: Well, she said, I will find the targets for you. And at yeah. that point, she does say, you know, uh, the worst of the worst
1: or something like that. Uh, so. yeah, I think afterwards, like, she, she directs him to kill a target, who she claims is some kind of horrible person, and then of course the when twist. we
0: discover what he is, it's a, that's the big end of the issue shock. And you know what? I will say this: it's nice that we get the premise in the actual issue, and not it's not it's not the end of the uh, the first issue. Oh, by the way, demons exist because well, yeah, obviously we bought a series called demonic. We know what we're gonna get. Yeah, right?
1: much like Kill or Be Killed, like at the very least, by the end of the issue, he does actually kill someone. So there is sort of like a set premise that is being No, executed. no, no, and kill or be killed, like half a dozen folks in the first two pages. No, but I'm talking like, but that's, the first issue is largely a flashback. Yeah, but at some point,
0: you know, Detective Graves puts on this terribly designed costume, like
1: really. Bargain basement Freddy Krueger.
0: Yes, bargain basement Freddy Krueger. And if this would have been played as a comedy, I would take it, like this guy's trying to dress up scary, but this is meant to be this big dramatic moment and it's weightless it's just totally weightless I which tends w- to be
1: the case with Sabella's writing in general where like you know why
0: why why do that why not just show him as a regular Joe going out and killing people that's a lot creepier than you know just this guy dressed up
1: well because then you get the premise of Dexter
0: with demons and Dexter ran for like what seven season and was very popular so why wouldn't you if you want to copy something copy that not really uh, again. Ghost Rider without the heavy metal music in the background. Well, the
1: difference, I think, with Ghost Rider is that people that he goes after in that he knows that they're bad. Scott Graves just seems to be taking this demon at her word, which is a dumb thing to do no matter which way you slice it. But um I don't know. I feel like there was something missing here that might have made the book more... Not exactly rational, but sort of like you can follow the logic here without sort of being like... Eh, whatever. Well,
0: you, well, yeah, you can answer that that, you know, his daughter is sick, and this demon is promising that. She'll save his daughter. So he he has the license to actologically, you know, yeah. a, fa- a concerned father. And, and but... he
1: probably has more reason to trust this demon only because he knows who she is. Like, yeah. this Novo thing and that they're And one, one of about. the
0: big things, you know, the big mystery here is not whether demons exist or not. We know that they do. It's what exactly his childhood connection to that demon. But
1: I just don't care. Yeah, it's not... Like, it's not set up in such a way that is interesting. Because what happens is... I think it's a pacing problem, too, because he starts talking about, like, his past with his demons or whatever with his wife, who clearly doesn't believe a word he's saying. And it's like, well, maybe you should have saved that for the epilogue. You know, like, give the reader a twist and be like, he bumps into this demon and it's like, oh, crap, it's you again. You know, like, put some kind of twist on it so that we don't see it coming. Whereas if you sit there and talk for, like, two or three pages about uh, the Novo's coming, no she's not, I don't do that, 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 and then she turns up, it's like, okay, yeah, we knew you were coming. It's not any kind of big shock. Yeah, Average, so, I, I would yeah, not... I wouldn't recommend I that. mean, to the best of my knowledge, this is a five-part miniseries. Six. Six. Six-part miniseries. I'd say maybe, like, wait for reviews of the trade, because Savella hasn't been able to really wow me in anything that he's done. It's always possible, though. So for a miniseries, I'm like, well, maybe wait and see what happens. But I wouldn't recommend this on a month-to-month basis. Shall we go on to the Backstagers? Sean, introduce them. No problem. This is the Backstagers number one, written by James Tinney the Fourth. art by Rian C from Boombox. This is an eight-issue miniseries. And let's... Well, well, since it's Boombox, chances are...
0: This is at first an 8-issue miniseries, then a 12-issue miniseries, then it's an ongoing. Maybe. We don't know. Boombox are the opposite DC. They announce something, it's short, and then they lengthen it.
1: Let me say this much. If they do decide to extend this, I would be totally okay with that. Let's get this out of the way straight up so that there's no ambiguity. This is Lumberjanes, the boy version.
0: The Lumberjohns. The
1: Lumberjohns, exactly. Well, that sounds kind of dirty. And perhaps like unnecessarily so.
0: I'm a M- Maybe I'm okay. maybe
1: the lumber James with an M. The, the lumber gems? Whatever. Anyway, so Tinian's not even trying to hide it, right? Sasha is very much the Ripley of this group right yet, This tiny ball of energy. Hunter's the flirt. Beckett's the mad scientist. I get the feeling Jory might be transgender because of the way he talks about boys in the first scene. And Joe was trans in Lumberjanes. And they're all outcasts together having crazy adventures in the margins where nobody bothers to pay attention to them. Okay. Yeah, the
0: big difference that this is not a summer camp. This is a, an all-boys school. And we have this new kid joining the group of the people who work in the back of the stage of the drama club. Right. But instead of you know dealing with regular drama for, uh, I don't know, we need the new tiara or something... The custom department messed up again, there are
1: magical demons in the background. It turns out that the backstage area, which no one ever goes to except for these backstagers, has some kind of portal to all these fantastic dimensions that the kids themselves are not entirely sure where they go because they keep walking into random rooms and finding all of these weird things. And, you know, the issue does a good job of showing how each of them has their talent Right. Hunter can build anything. Beckett knows all about like electricity or whatever. Uh, Sasha, I think is like the heart of the group because like he, he finds a pet and he wants to take care of it or whatever. And Aziz is just the guy standing there going like, Oh my God, are we doing this again? Now, the question I think that's most relevant to discussing backstagers is that if we set the Lumberjanes comparison aside, does it merit, you know, praise on its own right?
0: Um, yeah, sure. It's not really, again, I I hate saying it, it's not really my thing. But for what it is, I think it's doing its job very well.
1: I do get the feeling, just as I did with Lumberjanes, that this might perhaps be targeting an age bracket younger than us.
0: It's an all-ages work, but it's one of those all-ages work that aims
1: more for the younger readers. Yeah, younger. It's very cartoony. It kind of reminds me of...
0: I I really love... It's as close to a boombox house style as you can, but I really love the boombox house style so I'm
1: not complaining. Fair enough. I I think it it actually reminds me a little bit of Steven Universe minus the psychotic fan base. So... Give it time. Sort of like, yeah, sort of like this idea of you know, the power of friendship and outsiders and gender and sexuality diversity. And, you know, all of these uh, guys hanging out together and discovering, you know, uh, the truth about themselves and having all these fantastic adventures. It's great. You know, it's fine as it is, just as Lumberjanes is fine as it is.
0: I I've just finished, I think, my run on Lumberjanes. I'm like, yeah, okay, I've seen what you're doing and it's fine for what it is, but just, I think I needed it to end, but it just doesn't want to end. So I am like, well, you know, keep being you, Lumberjanes. I'm
1: just out. Yeah, that's exactly the point of distinction. I feel like when we were reviewing the first arc of Lumberjanes, I think we both would have been okay had it been the end. Like, we would have been able to just say, okay, it's fine as it is, leave it be. And it went on, and and that was fine. But I think this miniseries would fall under the same danger of going on for too long if it becomes an ongoing because so far it's hard for me to look at the series and say because Tinian is a great writer and he understands how to write distinct characters you never get confused between who any of these boys are and that's all well and good I do have to wonder though if you turn it into an ongoing would it still be appealing like I'm willing to stick around for the eight issue miniseries just because you know the book's fun And just as Lumberjanes was fun at the time. But I am constantly aware of the fact that this is not written for me in the way that other boombox titles... Giant Days. Oh, my God. Giant Days is a perfect example of a book that could appeal just as easily to someone half my age and to me and to someone twice my age. Right? This is not that. I do constantly get the feeling of, you know, you have to be in a slightly different mindset to really get how all of these characters are, like, cranked up to 11. Like, Sasha never has an off moment. He's just, like, this constantly huge smile, and he has the eyes, like, the creepy-eyed girl from Dexter's lab. You remember? Yeah. Aye, aye, your eyes hypnotized. So, he, he kind of <laughs> See, looks like that. I, I like over-the-top cartoonishness. If anything, I'd say the problem
0: with something not a problem... The thing with something like Lumberjanes or Backstagers is that it is... It's not cartoonishly enough to be like a Looney Tunes, to be like an all-out gag fest. And it's not dramatic enough to be like Giant Days, which is to say you're really invested in the relations between the characters. It's just, like you said, right in the middle, which is fine, but for me, I'm again, I'm the extreme guy, right? Either be over the top or be under the top. Don't be... Just on top.
1: I don't even know if it's a case of extremes per se, because like, think about it. It makes perfect sense to say, like, when you look at something like Giant Days, the whole thing with McGraw, for example, that whole storyline, and how it affected all three of the girls in different ways, it makes perfect sense. Esther, on the other hand, being a drama queen and knocking things over and being completely insane is part of it too, right? It doesn't feel like they contradict. Like I'm reading Backstagers right now, and I get that they're having like all of these zany adventures and all that. But if if they tried to be dramatic in the middle, it would be like I don't think that that's part of what this book has been aiming towards. It, it's not a case of extremes. It's a case of you cannot do both. You can't be over the top and then be like, be invested in our characters. No one has ever sat down and been like, I feel so bad for Wiley e. Coyote. He must have like a sense of inner angst of never being able to well, accomplish I his goals. Well, I would take you back to Animal Man number five then. Grant Morrison, I need more mescaline to understand what was going on <laughs> in that book. I don't want to. I, know. I will
0: say that just like Demonic, it is really made from plot-wise from a generic cloth, but this one actually does work. Yeah, I think
1: the difference is that
0: we literally have the new transfer student uh, learning to new school, and it's, it's less of a Western cloth, I'd say. It's, it reminds me, plot-wise, very much of something like a manga or an anime.
1: Well, it doesn't it call back Gotham Academy, too?
0: Yeah, yeah, which, again, very much an
1: anime-esque thing. Yeah, I think the, the difference, it just comes down to, like, the execution of the writer. Tinian has a knack for creating sympathetic characters, which is something that's very useful when you're dealing with a plot that could appear to be generic. Right? If the whole point of this miniseries is just these boys running around going crazy and uh, uh you know, like having all these adventures with giant rats or whatever, and at the same time being sort of like marginalized because they're not on the stage, right? They're not the actors with the spotlights who are like the center of attention, they're the the side characters. And they're the side characters having their own adventures. It is so generic a formula, especially today, and I think especially with Boom because Boom has done so much in that vein, that you would have to have characters who are appealing on a very basic level. And I think that Tinian does pull that off here.
0: I would really like a friendo plushie.
1: Yeah, it's cute. And it's like, when you look at them, even, I've been ragging on Sasha a little bit for being like, oh my God, can you tone it down just a little bit? But even him, I wouldn't say, he's not grating, right? Like he doesn't get on your nerves. There's no character in this book besides the twins, that I would look at and be just like, why do you exist?
0: And their point of existence is being the why did you exist? Yeah, exactly.
1: They're like draped all over each other being like, oh, our tiara is incorrect. Go find those peasants. It's like, you know, they're the ones that if this story had been about them, you would not be picking up issue number two. So I liked it. I liked the characters. I am expecting this to become an ongoing at some point, just because it feels inevitable, right? Like, it feels like if this book succeeds half as well as Lumberjanes did, and there's no reason it shouldn't, that it's going to be, like, an ongoing. And I don't know if I would stick around for that. But for the first eight issues, I feel like I'd be I'd be into it. I want to see where yep. it goes.
0: Uh, and we shall end with our pivoted trade review. And this time it's an actual trade that came out. Not just uh, first several issues of a series uh, that would be collected.
1: Not that that distinction matters. You no, know. no,
0: no. Just saying. If you want it, you can just go back to the shop closest to you and ask for a trade. Don't ask
1: for the trade. Spoiler. Go ahead, though. Oh. uh
0: The Chili Adventures of Sabrina, written by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa, drawn by Robert Hack. This is from Archie Comics, part of their dark line alongside the... Never quite published Archie... What was it called? The Undead Archie? Afterlife with Archie. Afterlife with Archie. Wasn't it published? I think publishes... It's technically an ongoing. I think they publish like one issue per year. Ah, ooh. Okay. Ever since the first arc, there have been horrible delays. Uh Uh-huh. So anyway, the plot. This is the 1960s, and we have Sabrina, the teenage witch, uh, living with her aunts, Hilda and Zelda, as well with her... Cousin Ambrose in the small town of Greendale, right next to Riverdale, actually. Mm -hmm. And she's nearing her 16th birthday, where she must choose whether to stay a witch or became immortal forever to be with her uh, lover,
1: Harvey. When you say stay a witch, just so that we're being specific, you are referring to the fact that she must take vows and become the bride of Satan. Yep. Okay.
0: Uh, This is the 19... 60s, Rosemary's Baby type pitches.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be giving it a little too much credit. Um, I am
0: not. In the back plot, we have uh, the original bride of her father, Madam Satan. Madam Satan. Coming, coming back from the grave to hunt her and sort of insert herself slowly into Sabrina's life as a substitute teacher in her school. Yeah. Okay, so you did not like this at all. Okay. I... Love this.
1: I'll be honest here. I, I'm at a bit of a loss. Mm-hmm. Maybe it, it was, like, too over the top for me, because I'm reading this and it's like, okay, everything is Satan. Everything is goats. Everything is cannibalism. The characters are just sort of there. Like, I don't feel like in five or six, no, I read the, uh, six issues. I don't feel like in six issues I have any idea of who Sabrina is, who her aunts are. Uh, like the only person who actually gets characterization is the succubus Madame Satan who's trying to kill her. Uh, like the cousin Ambrose, what do we know about him? Nothing. Like not
0: again. I really love this because what it does, it takes the generic sitcom character ensemble. You can basically imagine this plot as a sitcom. It was called Serena the Teenage Witch. What? What? You, 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 have, cannot... you have two aunts and the teenage daughter, and, and they're, they're sacra- to- and they're eating
1: corpses. Tom.
0: Yes, and then you. Once you add up the super, the horribly supernatural, you take this thing that is known as a cutesy thing, and you and and you add up the horrible Satanism stuff without actually changing the interaction between the characters. Because as what are you far talking as, about? Of course, it changes the interaction. No, because as far as Hilda and Zelda are concerned, what they're doing is perfectly normal. But Hilda, you know, they still they still think they leave in in regular, you know, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. It's just that you know. They grew up to think that, you know, proper witching... Well, in their universe, proper witching does include sacrifices to Lord
1: Satan. Let's run this by the Plinkett test, okay? You know the Red Letter Media test? Uh, no. Okay. It's a test that was popularized for this very, very uh, well-known criticism of it, uh, the, f- oh, the Phantom oh, Menace. The Star Wars right. thing. So, Tom, without describing their appearance or their function in the story, describe Zelda and Hilda in this comic.
0: They are the would-be loving uh, step-parents of Sabrina. Are they loving?
1: They... Yes. How are they loving? Their sole concern they... is making sure that Sabrina is ready to marry Satan.
0: Yes, it's and it's their version of love. That's why I think it's wonderful, because we get to see these characters whose values are completely alien to us act like, well, yeah, this is perfectly normal. It's almost... It's the Adams family if they were even more extreme than they are. What's the big joke with the Adams family is that as far as the Adams are concerned, they are perfectly normal, right? And everybody else is a bit of a crazy poop.
1: Yes, but the Adams don't worship Satan and they don't cannibalize people and they don't murder, like, spoiler, Harvey gets murdered by these witches, right? And they're not yep. subtle about it. So I feel like. There might have been some kind of charm in the idea of, well, let's just go with Satanist witches and apply it to Sabrina and play it straight. But this, I think, crosses too many lines in trying to be shocking and out there and having people be like, praise Lucifer! Yay! Satan! Sacrifice this goat! All right! And it doesn't have any appeal. It doesn't have any charm. It's not something that's particularly fun to read. Because, again, like this is something that was connected to... What we were talking about earlier, I don't see any connection here between what we identify as Sabrina the Teenage Witch and what this book is. You might as well have just called it something else, right? This could have literally been any Oh, well, you're book.
0: talking about Sabrina the TV show or the actual Both.
1: comics. I mean, listen, the actual there are strips from the actual comic included in every issue. Right from the Archie Comics. So, it's Said, not,
0: sadly, not the Sabrina, uh, Hellboy crossover. No,
1: but I think that, w- that might have been like where this started. Although we even, see, this is the thing. Even the Sabrina Hellboy crossover had a little more charm to it, a little more like.
0: I, I, don't I really, know, they, I. I, I'm not gonna say I couldn't disagree more because I could disagree more. This was just such I,
1: a slog to go through. It's like I, the, I
0: really, I really liked it, and I liked the way they intersected both stories. I really like Madame Satan for all of my sins. Madame Satan she, is
1: the only character, though, that she's
0: just so deliciously evil, and you know, actually horrifying. And she's actually horrifying in a setting where everybody's so used to the horror, because for these characters, the other witches just don't know that she's there.
1: No, but again, like part of that is also because Madame Satan is the only one who you actually understand anything about. Like, you know her motivations. You know why she's doing what she's doing. There's so much attention given over to her actions and what it is that she is trying to do specifically, which is true for absolutely nobody else in this comic. What do you know about the cousin Ambrose? Nothing. He he doesn't have a backstory. He doesn't actually do anything in the entire yeah, six with issues. him.
0: With him, I do agree. I would ex- I expected when he appeared to be something a bit more a competition, but nothing. He's more of a sounding board for Sabrina than anything else. As
1: if Sabrina needs it, she has internal monologue, right? On top of that, she's telepathic. She can communicate with her aunts, who are also like. Again, I did not want to bring up the sitcom because obviously the sitcom was just as. Extreme an interpretation in the other direction, right? But at least in that sitcom, you could tell the difference between Zelda and Hilda. Like Zelda was the responsible one, Hilda was the fun ant, right? Even that basic distinction does not exist in this book. For half the time, and and this is no knock on Hack's artistic skill, but half oh, no, of the no, time
0: it's, it's lovely. It,
1: it is like very very true to its genre, but half the time I couldn't tell the difference between the two ants. Personality wise? Anyway, like, what, how could you possibly distinguish between them? What do they do in these six issues to demonstrate separate personalities? They're just the ants. Well,
0: yeah, because this is in relation to
1: Sabrina and how she feels about the world. But Sabrina herself has no, it's presented as if she has some kind of huge choice between, on the one hand, being a mortal and on the other hand, being a witch. She does not yes. seem at all to understand what being a witch actually means until they explain it to her. I don't think, in fact, is it? A- I think, I think she understands. Am I exaggerating? And I, I really,
0: her? I really like the way that th- th- these issues portray her attempting to make a choice, you know, to this thing she grew up in while at the same time trying to have a normal relations and saying, well, maybe I love him, maybe I don't. And because she can't really choose. She tries to keep them both, like saying, I can be a witch and I can be with Harvey.
1: She loses everything, really. But, I don't know. It, it just felt so beyond the pale as to, like, I don't even, I don't understand the point here, right? Like, the, the whole issue with, in fact, am I mistaken in thinking that Sabrina doesn't even do magic until the very end? Like, not until... No, she,
0: she does very little things. She does very... nothing. Well, she does some few things, but we're not. she's not supposed to do magic, right? Because she's not a proper witch yet.
1: And yet she does. She has her telepathy. She has her... Well, yeah, right?
0: just like Harry Potter is not supposed to do magic outside of
1: school, now, see, but he does
0: all the time. Harry
1: Potter being a Satanist outside of the fan, infamous fanfiction My Immortal, is something that I feel like... Uh, yeah, sure. Here, <laughs> I don't know. It's just because I was reading it and it's like... I don't have any character here to root for. I don't care about anybody here.
0: and for me, this is why it is a proper use of nostalgia character because this really wouldn't have worked for me in any way outside of it being a a rework with characters that I already know. But it's an arbitrary connection,
1: Tom. It's -hmm. a completely arbitrary connection. What does this character have anything to do with, with Sabrina Spellman in any incarnation besides the name?
0: What do you mean? She's a teenage witch. So? And she needs to choose between the mortal and the immortal world. That's that's the plot. Yes, but
1: literally you could have had that with any other boom image. No, book, because whatever.
0: one because once you make her Sabrina, once you connect her to this idealized, always sunny teenage world of Archie, which is what Sabrina was, right? It was the fun take. It was the super nice everything is okay take. And then you portray it in such an odd manner, you're making it, for me, a lot more interesting than if this was, you know what, if this was just the chilly adventures of, I don't know, Edwina, this was a lot less interesting to me. But because it's the adventures of Sabrina, I'm interested. And you know what, I would have liked, I would have still liked it, I'm just saying, as it is, I like it more.
1: But see, that seems to me to be like proving the opposite when it comes to nostalgia. Because like, what about this book, would ping your nostalgia button for Sabrina in any way that would not be as applicable for, like, Edwina or whatever. There's no connection here to anything that has to do with Sabrina at all. Because, it, because if, if you're portraying
0: it in a different manner, there has to be an original manner to portray it against.
1: The idea of witches being like Satan's brides and a girl having to choose between her family and the boy that she loves is not in any way inventive.
0: Yeah, but the portraying uh, witches as the Brides of Satan, while portraying these relations as for them utterly normal, not as, uh, you know, for the outside world, yes, they're cackling villains within their own little enclave, they're perfectly fine. No, they're not. And they, they murder people. Them, yes, well, yes, but for them, it's fine. They treat it as something completely normal. It's like, you know, it's, oh, it's the daily life, what you did. Oh, I went to school, murdered a couple of people, sacrificed okay. to go to Lord Satan. So
1: why would that not work with an original character?
0: No no I didn't say it would work I said it would work less Why Because you're taking something familiar and you're playing it in a different way. But
1: Aguirre-Sacasa has taken this so beyond the context of anything at all. Like, again, the, the only commonalities I see here is that her name happens to be Sabrina. She happens to have two aunts and a cat named Salem. That's it. Like, there is no... She doesn't act the same. She doesn't have the same problems. Nothing about this book in any way is reminiscent of anything to do with Sabrina. Other than the fact that it's her image... Being inverted as, look, now she's the bride of Satan.
0: I can connect to your can-not n- connection. We'll,
1: we'll have to disagree on that, because like, I, I found nothing and, appealing and B, about that. I
0: really, and I really love the art here. The art's just, great. W- what Hack is doing is, design-wise, it's almost like Matt Kinty, especially in the in the roughness of the soul. Yeah. You know, there's this sense of everything is almost like scratched on wood. I can see that, were. absolutely. But at the same time, you know... Uh, He's also doing the coloring. Yes, he's also doing the coloring. The color actually does call back to something a bit more afterlife with Archie. And okay, yes, some of it is really the art that works for me as a mood piece and as something that is between the horror of everyday life. Uh, you know, the scene with Harvey just reading, discovering porn magazines in the 1960s, being this, you know, this kid's biggest thing and being threatened by a bunch of bullies. And the supernatural horror.
1: The problem is that that everyday life scene happens to Harvey and not to Sabrina. That's the thing. This is not Harvey's book. It's not his story. And in point of fact, like well, again, it's fa- to spoil parts a, of
0: it, it's his story. To
1: spoil, no, not really. To spoil a plot point, he is really just a sacrificial lamb. You find no, out by the end of no, the no, trade. No.
0: just a sacrificial lamb would would imply that he dies at the end of I don't know the third or second issue. What do you he know about him, view? Tom? Four and he's going to come back. That's part of Not the theory, really. Right? Have
1: you read, like, the, the subsequent issues? Okay, the trade ends on issue five, right? Yes. So he comes back, but it's not him. Well, yeah. Okay, which was Madame Satan's plan all along. Fine, but then, okay, so you have this humanizing moment that tries to show, like, the interiority of a character in this really weird environment, and you give it to someone who is not only completely typical right he's the person that sabrina puts a love spell on he falls for her he dies the end there is nothing more to him why sabrina doesn't have that though sabrina never has that moment of acting like a normal person because she is constantly surrounded by this whole normalized you know go ride this goat and then sacrifice it and you know yes that
0: what works the normalizing of the unnormal
1: okay I, I can't. Like, okay. I, yeah, I, I we really. Can. It's, it's, it's one of those books that we're just going to have to disagree on. Yeah, cause... it's
0: like, uh, what was it? Uh, This One Summer, which was one of my favorite books of the year, and you just hated it. Hated it. You hate nice Face. I didn't Sean. hate
1: This One Summer. It just didn't do anything for me. But this I do kind of hate because I feel like this is exactly the kind of cynical, uh, grab for nostalgia without really understanding what it is that you are trying to recreate. Because, again, like if you had filed the serial numbers off, the, and this could have been a Dark Horse book about a girl named Edwina who has two aunts. Aside from the names, these characters have nothing...
0: Well, that and you have Betty and Veronica show up.
1: As witches. Yep. Yep. Whatever that means, like I don't know. No,
0: I I like the idea that they they have supernatural powers, but they don't know what to do with them because they weren't
1: born. No, they have supernatural powers, and they are still fighting over Archie.
0: Yeah, but they don't they don't know off which society, which I think is a nice twist, which w- makes them an easy prey for Madame Sait. Yeah,
1: but they're cameos; they're not like significant in any way. They're well, not-
0: I assume they will be more
1: significant in the next storyline. I don't know. Uh, if it doesn't turn up in the first storyline, I don't think there's any justification for like. Projecting it forward, I don't know. I I I really like I what know. they did with. The,
0: I I like I like this thing. I, I feel like, like this
1: would have had to have something.
0: It's not a perfect series; far from it. Like you said, it's superficial. Uh, it's completely the ants superficial. The are a bit of a one character in
1: two. And Ambrose the cousin, is the same. Salem and, is the same. Her dad is a one note character. Harvey oh, is I one really, note. I really like the dad. Why short appearance?
0: I really like this type of bastard, which which is what he was. I think he was a really magnificent type of bastard.
1: Because what? What does he do? He does nothing. The only thing that he does is defy the council and is apparently punished for it. The end.
0: Yes, and manipulate his wife. So? Both
1: of them. There is no character here that has any kind of depth, which, if this were a sitcom, would be acceptable. But because it's meant to be read, at the very least, tongue-in-cheek, right? At the very least, you're supposed to look at this and be, like, uh, kind of weird, kind of creepy, whatever. None of these characters have any kind of distinguishing features at all and I just, I don't see the appeal in that.
0: It's going to be one of these episodes <laughs> then that ends on the... Uh. Well,
1: I think we can agree that Backstagers was good. Uh You know, we're in agreement that All-Star Batman and Demonic are Average ish, you know that they. Uh, okay, that okay.
0: They have... If we're gonna if we're gonna like rank the reviews, the manic I'd say is the worst of the bunch for me. This yeah this episode. Yeah, I agree with that because it's just boring. And All Star Batman is good for what it is, which is Scott Snyder's Batman. I just don't care about it. Backstagers, very fun, and I just okay this and the trade, the trade review is going to have his... to be
1: contentious. We'll we'll yeah. we'll leave it
0: at that. Uh, the next episode before we finish is our fiftieth, and. Yeah, we're planning something special, and it's not a ring numbering to num- to one. No, we are not going to be doing no that. Marvel, no Marvel here.
1: We will not be calling ourselves the Smorgasbord now.
0: All new, all different Smorgasbord. 0.
1: 0.1. one, uh, none of what that. What was it?
0: Uh dot <laughs> <laughs>
1: Dot now it's comma. Not, it's not
0: going to be that. It's going to be a round table with some of our Smorgas friends. Yes, we're going to turn up the Smorgas signal, and we're going to summon the Smorgas friends, and we're going to talk about the comic book. yes
1: the state of the industry panel it's going to be very interesting (laughs) and very fun
0: we will decide the state of the industry and when (laughs) we finish you will follow we have the power so this was episode 49 of the smorgasbord i'm tom shapira
1: and i'm sean edry
0: until next time bon appetit